Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. This week we are joined by David Leglands, a recently retired Canada Border Services Agency officer who worked at the department for 37 years. David has been awarded the Queen's Golden and Diamond Jubilee Medals, as well as the Peace Officer Exemplary Service Medal and Bar. He worked at land, sea, air, and mail ports of entry. In this episode, I make reference to another podcast by Christian Lane called Team 10-8. Christian's podcast consists of interviews with various frontline workers in Canadian law enforcement, emergency, and military communities. His podcast can be found on all podcast platforms and is uh, definitely worth checking out. In this episode, David talks about his career with the Canada Border Services Agency, some of his more memorable cases, including when a uh, person from India had a small bag in a suitcase that was actually labeled anthrax, uh, the organizational culture of the Canada Border Services Agency, how David's career fostered, and how a sense of compassion or how the career with CBSA stressed to him the importance of compassion and more. If you like today's episode, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you enjoy. Your career then, was it a mix of the land port of entry as well as uh, airports? Yeah, uh, marine airport. Uh, Border. Uh, I worked in a drug unit. I worked at the post office. Um, yeah, it was. I, I was all over the map, which is really enjoyable. And what dictates where you work? Is it there's just postings that come up and you apply, or do they send you around? It's it's in districts. So if you worked in the Metro Vancouver district, you could work in Marine. You could work in a downtown office. You could work uh, at the post office, uh, and then at the border you worked at Pack Highway or Douglas or Boundary Bay. And at the airport, you'd either work at, at uh, doing traffic operations or you'd go out and work out at air cargo, searching, searching bags, boxes, or uh, going airside and searching planes yeah. as well. So is there a lot of movement between port of entry and say inland enforcement? Not particularly. You have to, for inland enforcement, you would have to apply for it. And it's, it's run out of Vancouver, I believe, like yeah. itself. And Western region is run out of Vancouver or I'm sorry? Even nationally? Western region is run out of Vancouver or even nationally? No, just the Western region, uh, just right. the Pacific region. So Alberta right. would have their own, like the Prairie region, I think it's Alberta and Saskatchewan. They would have their own uh, enforcement group or inland enforcement, I would think. And then uh, the Vancouver has their own group and their yeah. office downtown. And I guess the like one thing I've always wondered is you often hear people say, oh, this port of entry is stricter or this port of entry, the officers are more flexible. Did you find that each port of entry almost had its own personality or was it really just a collection of individuals who are all different? It's just a collection of individuals that are different um, because when I was there, uh, people worked at Pacific Highway. We would also rotate between Douglas and Pacific Highway and Boundary Bay. But I think it's individual experiences. So if they go through the truck crossing and they have a bad experience, then they say, oh, the truck crossing is bad, then they're going to go through, through Douglas. So they kind of, 
it's your own personal experience. <laughs> so, so you don't believe necessarily like one port is stricter than the others or that a supervisor no. might dictate things or anything like that. There is a lot of supervisors and there's a lot of acting supervisors. So it's, it's not as simple as that. So, and there's, and the, and the uh, director at the border sort of dictates all the, all the resources there. So the rules would all be the same. How strict they are would be all the same. Yeah. The, was I so and then in terms of like airport marine or land are those border crossings also kind of all the same where it's the collection of individuals not necessarily a different a specific flavor to each one yeah exactly it's it's when you work in marine you could work um there's a couple of examination facilities where there's they're uh, targeting for narcotics and then they search there's another spot or the, where they search ships so and and the and the the members move around from port to port or from office to office. Yeah. So it would be the same. Yeah. What initially got you interested in working with CBSA? Uh, I started in 1978 and completely green, but I, I really enjoyed the, the interviewing people or talking to people, learning their story. I liked searching it was like a puzzle. So you'd have to, you're sort of combining <laughs> what the individuals are saying with what actually what they have. And then yeah. you start honing your skills where you're looking at the driver, sort of looking at the passengers, see when the driver says something with the passenger, how they're going to respond, like look at each other, thinking I'm going to buy it or not. So yeah, it, it was, <laughs> I want to say it's, it's not a game, but I, 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 I challenged myself. So I like that. And it's sort of like, it's positive reinforcement when you find stuff. So yeah. And in the late 70s, that would have been like, were you involved with the um, Vietnamese resettlement? Yes. Yeah, I, that's, I started full time in 1980 in January in Edmonton, and they were already processing uh, refugees from Vietnam and they were chartering planes and they were bringing them into um, uh, Edmonton International Airport. And then they would bring them in on buses or they'd fly in the buses would go out onto the tarmac and they would load them onto the buses and then they would take them out to the uh, Nemeo Air Force Base outside of Edmonton. And Montreal was doing something similar. They were either, they were flying into Montreal, Maribel, and sort of doing, I'm not sure exactly where they processed them, but I suspect it would be the same situations that we had in Edmonton. And like, what was your involvement? Was it like, what sort of questions do you ask when it's there a wasn't mass a lot of resettlement like that? It, it, at that time, it was just processing the what, what they what they had. It was kind of um, enlightening for me to see. I had never witnessed anything like that. You know, being from a small town, seeing a whole, you know, a culture coming into this country with nothing, and they would be taken off the bus, and they would be separated between males and females, and then they would be taken into the facility, and they would be showered, like they would remove their old clothes showered and then given new clothes and once they had that processed then they would come and collect whatever little belongings they had and then we would examine their stuff and then they would be moved on and at the with the immigration paperwork i i didn't follow that at all i just know that they were being sponsored by church groups etc when they when they came in yeah did sorry, did it oh, sorry go ahead I think one thing I wish in hindsight at that time, I would have kind of done some research on that whole program of why they were being brought in 
because we weren't really informed. We're just saying that, you know, not knowing that, knowing today that we would call them boat people. But in today's language, that's, that's racist and insulting because um, it wasn't just Vietnamese, it was people from Laos and Cambodia. And those people faced the same hardships as the Vietnamese or to a degree. And they, they, they uh, left their countries by land for the most part. Where in Vietnam, most of them were put on boats. And then that, I believe there was like 250,000 that drowned trying to escape. So very eye-opening for me anyways. Was it something that stuck with you through your career? Yes, I, 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 yes, it did. I, I, I think it helped me personally to um, becoming more compassionate, I think, because uh, to see how the hardships people face from other countries, and especially coming from a small town, you just don't, you're not, your eyes aren't open to stuff like that. And years and years ago, uh, before there was computers, th there's very little information. Like we would get, you know, papers to read about something. You wouldn't go on the internet and have something at your hand easily to be able to read about, right? So I look back and, and, and realizing what people had gone through to, you know, the sacrifices they made to, to come to this country and how many people perished trying to do the same thing yeah. come here. Do you think when you start, like if that is when you're joining CBSA and it's what you're being exposed to in your first year, does that shape or do you think it shapes your overall perspective on your career and role different than say someone who's starting when there is no instance like that versus someone who's say starting during 9-11, uh, like someone starting say during 9-11 versus someone starting during the Vietnamese resettlement or the Syrian resettlement. Do you think there's long-term uh, implications and how that can form an officer's perspective? I, I think so personally, because it's what they're exposed to. So if, if somebody who comes into CBS or into that environment after 9-11, and then, you know, from Western media, we're just bombarded with, with uh, Intel and, and this is happening and, and uh, I mentioned in a previous podcast is that I stopped reading newspapers. Like I, I, I was overwhelmed and I'd come home and basically break down or get teary eyed because it's like, okay, you get pushed and pushed into these with all this information about what's going on. And um, I personally, it was overwhelming. And I worked 9-11 um, when the planes were coming in and there was so much information that was coming in uh, about the terrorists. And of course, you're having flights with people of color and stuff, and they are uh, coming from countries that, that potentially from the Middle East and stuff like that. And they were just on connecting flights. And they're like, okay, is this person a terrorist? Is this person a terrorist, right? We need to be searching everybody's bags. When we were, the uh, airport was basically, the tarmac was filled with airplanes. Um, and we, the bags didn't come in. We had to go out. Uh, the next morning, I was out on a tarmac with an x-ray unit that had, because I'd worked in a drug unit, um, searching bags for explosives and everything else. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. But I think I was fortunate in respect to the compassion thing of having a long career. So you see 
people from other countries that from working at the border and people coming up from Central America and from Mexico that we're just looking for a better life, right? So, uh, I mean, personally, I think I was very fortunate to have that experience prior to 9-11. Yeah. Do you, because I mean, I don't, and I don't want to get too contemporary political uh, with this conversation, but like when you see now the people who are crossing at, say, Roxham Road, which is obviously putting tremendous strain uh, on officers there, you hear about people showing up. Uh, this is a border crossing in, I think it's Manitoba or Quebec, um, but you've mm -hmm. heard about CBSA intercepting or receiving people who have had frostbite where they're missing limbs yes. and yeah. things like that. Like to the individual officer, how do you think that would like impact them? Cause I've never experienced, I've never had that experience. I think, um, it's I think it's eye-opening and, and sometimes traumatizing, especially if you have somebody who's got frostbite and, and stuff. And, and that's the sad part of the, where people are crossing it at un, un, and say unmanned, because that's not really the proper term, at actual border points, because they're finding that that's the easiest way to get in without having to go through. I mean, they'll, they, they'll get processed eventually, but it's sort of jumping the, the gun, so to speak, to get into the country. But um, a lot of people have suffered from that as well by yeah. getting dropped off. And people are being taken, and it's human trafficking in a way that people are making lots of money on driving these people up to the border, dumping them off, and then heading right back and saying, you know, go down that road or cross that ditch or whatever. And it's, you know, 20 below and, and, and snow and stuff like that. But can you imagine where these people have come from that they're willing to do that to come for a better life? Yeah. And that's, I, that's where personally, I think that I had a conversation uh, probably just prior to my retirement with some, um, uh, an American who was overtly racist. And I just said, we're, we're both countries of immigrants, right? And I said, your lottery ticket is that you were born there. That's it, right? What would you do? And this is what I always say to people. What would you do if you were from a country that where there is war and stuff like that? Would you not want your family to have a better life? So what would you do in that situation? But I don't think the public really kind of gets that. They sort of lose sight from their everyday life and stuff. And they hear that all these people are coming in and they're going to take jobs. And that's not the case in my mind anyways. I mean, I've, I've dealt with, a lot of, um, I was going to say, actually, that when I worked for a lot of years, and I worked in a container inspection facility, and I, I was involved in a lot of narcotic seizures and a lot of weapons, and those are an, an emotional high. When you find something, it's, it's, it's like, yes. And if it was guns or weapons or, or drugs or even commodities of high value, you're like, I feel really good. Like, intercepted something, that's great. But if you have somebody that's trying to come to Canada, that's trying to, to circumvent immigration laws and you catch them, there's no joy personally in my mind because I'm just, I'm doing my job, right? And I know that they're trying to come to a better life, but my job is to actually intercept them and then they go back to immigration and then they process them, whether they're gonna send them back or, or whatever they're gonna do, so. So how did you reconcile that like with your, say your human compassion versus uh, the need to enforce the law, say. So we previously spoke with a retired inland enforcement officer named Carl Bro, 
And mm-hmm. he was talking about on his end, or maybe not on his end, but at Inland Enforcement, they had the same, uh, he felt that there was often the same dilemma between the cases that you know you wanted to enforce and you felt good enforcing versus the cases that you didn't really, and you could sort of prioritize your efforts as an inland enforcement officer, who you're going to focus on to remove versus at the border, if you know, you have someone in front of you, yes. you kind of have to make the decision there. There isn't that same luxury, it would seem. Yeah. And, and I, for me personally, I would do my job and that's where you have to kind of take the, the emotion part out of it. I, like I said, it was, there was no joy in, in I, I had a woman that came in from, from Russia on a fake passport. And this will stick by me as well, is that she, she got caught at primary when they came into the, up to the booth and her passport didn't seem, it was well done, but it was enough to, to concern the officer and they, they centered immigration. And then immigration deferred their examination and brought them into the secondary area for someone to inspect her, her belongings to see if there was anything that would, you know, put the pieces together. And so she was presented to me and her life, and this really does stand, stick with me, is that her life was in this beat up old green suitcase and inside there were her possessions. And it was like very few pieces of clothing and a little, um, a little baggie with a couple tea bags and a couple little trinkets. And that broke my heart because that's her life in a nutshell. She's paying somebody for a, a fake passport. And then in all likelihood, she's going to have to pay her way once she got through. And those were the concerns are for me is that people are being human trafficking where these people are coming in. And it's not like they get through customs and they're here and it's, you know, it's, it's, they're good to go. They win. They don't. A lot of these poor people end up working as prostitutes, et cetera, just to pay off the debt for, for, for the pleasure or luxury of being able to come into this country. And just to go back in the timeline a little bit. So you started mm-hmm. with the, uh, the Vietnamese refugee claims. I'll just yeah. call it that. Or not refugee claims, I guess. They were resettled yes. refugees. And uh, we've talked with some ministers from the early 90s who discussed how during the 80s there was a shift from the resettlement of the Vietnamese boat uh, people or not boat Mm -hmm. people as you mentioned but migrants to um, tackling what was perceived to be a crisis of fraudulent refugee claims during the 80s did you notice that shift at all on the ground or did that impact you that's what they said they felt at the political level um, I personally think that it's, it's always been that way, but because of technology that we, when, when they're sending letters and stuff like that, that's all we're seeing. But now as there's more cooperation between other countries as well, and, and we become more in tune of what's going on where people are, are exiting other countries and trying to get into Canada. So the Intel for immigration is is much better, like anything else. So I I, I I can't honestly say that there's an increase of fraudulent documents because there always has been, but I think just we're, we're, our skill set has gotten better based on a number of factors. 
yeah. one of share one of sharing information with other countries and then also sharing documents or showing what we found and then and it gets sent to across the country whereas years ago if you found something and you it would go to intelligence they would write up something and then it would get sent by mail to all the ports across the country right so now it's the click of a switch and it everybody gets it immediately right and and then intel shares intel with other countries so we're sort of we're I'm not saying we're, we're totally aligned, but we are more aligned than we were in the 70s and 80s. So how did it work like back then? Because even if you had, you know, you'd gotten mailed, this is what a fake, I don't know, Washington state ID looks like or something. Mm -hmm. How do you like on the general, the stress of the day to day uh, decision making, like how many people would you say when you were at the port of entry, say, I don't know if it was different airport or land, would you interact with in like an hour? I'm sorry. Of, of So like how many people would you interact with in an hour, like review their documents, make a decision as to whether admit them or not? Easily a hundred because there's a lot of pressure at the border to process traffic. So then you didn't have to present each person's passport and they would scan it before they would just be pass you all your documents if it was from the u.s you'd have driver's licenses etc and at the airport would be the same thing and at the airport your your the families would come up and you would process them as quick as possible because there was always pressure on processing and processing and moving on because there's another flight you know people are waiting to clear as well and, and how did sorry how does that play out like because as i have some friends who are cbsa officers and they've said the same thing like the big the big pressure on them, whether it's at primary where there's the lineup of cars or secondary where there's, you know, only so many chairs for people to sit yeah, yeah. is the, uh, that pressure of time, like in secondary, how many, like either at the land or the airport, would you say you, was it still a hundred people per hour or? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it all depends because personally I, I, I would talk to other officers because I did have a fair amount of experience and I'd just say, take the time you need, right? Obviously there's, they, they want you to process, but don't, until you're satisfied that they're, it's a legitimate claim coming in or, or for, for a visitor or non-visitor or and a returning resident, you start your, your skill set gets, I think as you, as the more you do, the better you get at it. Like your whole, how your, your whole shtick about talking to somebody, your processing of questions. I had an individual uh, right after 9-11 that um, was coming to go to flight school and he was from India. And at that time, there was intel bulletins about anthrax being, was going to be spread and, and, and cause death to Canadians, et cetera, et cetera. And this individual had come up and he, I talked to him, he, he was, he, he was coming here to go to flight school. And I, I would always like to ask a few extra questions. I don't just pop a suitcase. I wanted to bring any gifts or anything. And I was satisfied with his story. I opened up, he had some wrap packages and which obviously is a, you know, warning signals coming off. And then there was an envelope and it was taped up and I started to open it. And there was a little bit of white powder that came out and that so of course I was concerned and I got the whole process of somebody watching him and detaining him and and on and on and on and and he was innocently given something 
to bring something to Canada. And it turns and it, inside the package, actually, when we had taken into this drug room, uh, it was marked anthrax, which shut the airport down. And this poor individual who his English was actually quite good. Um, but from the from the stress when they were when he was being interviewed, I wasn't interviewing him. I was now separately controlling the this this what we thought suspected anthrax. He could not speak English. He was just so stressed. He was his hands were in a ball tight, just from just he was incredibly stressed. The poor guy actually, but poor all of us because shut the terminal down and stuff too. But what what a welcoming to Canada. The package actually, said anthrax on it. So someone it was, had, like, inside, as a joke. Inside, as a joke. So inside uh, the envelope, there was a piece of paper and there was full of this white powder. And it was marked anthrax, like inside. So, anyways, um, it turns out that somebody had given them this to take to Canada to give to somebody. And that individual in India thought it was a joke. So the individual in India actually got arrested by Interpol. And from my understanding, and actually served time in an Indian uh, prison versus going to a Canadian. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it was the last time he was going to do that kind of joke, I'm sure. But uh, and what, what was it? And that was just like the sense you got from interviewing him that something like how would you have like what would tip um, you off that there might have been? Well, I was going to open a suitcase because he was in secondary, but I wanted to mm -hmm. find out a person's story before I automatically open a bag because yeah. I don't know. People, people kind of, it's, it's awkward as you know, I'm sure coming through a border or getting sent into secondary and you're, and you're, you, you know, obviously you can be incredibly honest, but still nervous because it's not something that you do every day. So this poor individual was just coming here to go to flight school, trying to do something nice because that's sort of a culture thing from my understanding is bring gifts to people here for other people because they're not coming here. And next thing you know, the guy's, he's, he's handcuffed and he's exiting the uh, Vancouver International Airport in a white, like a, have whatever the hazmat suit or whatever it is yeah. <laughs> in handcuffs. And they have them in, in these in paper, like he's on the front page of the province or the sun, I can't remember which. So this is this poor guy's introduction into Canada, but uh, he did get released and he got to go after that after everything was settled. But man, anyways. And did you process work permits, uh, temporary resident permit applications? No, I didn't. I didn't. When after the split or when we became CBSA and immigration and um, customs were sort of integrated together, there was sort of the one size fits all. You did every every aspect of the job where. I had been in a long time and I never experienced processing working on the immigration side. Yeah. And so after the split day to day, what did your role consist of? I still work secondary and primary. And then if there's any issues, I would send them to the immigration for processing. Yeah. If there's concerns about their, their documents or if they're coming here on work permits. And then we had people that would just process them in there. And at secondary, maybe can you explain the distinction between like secondary and where someone applies for a work permit or a study permit? I understand at different airports, they have different terms. Okay. So if somebody comes up to the primary booth and presents themselves with the documents 
and they they would tell us they would have the documents with them and most most of the time saying that they've got documents uh, to work here or they've got um, paperwork from a, a university or college that's accepted them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, a lot of that stuff would be done in advance. And then we would direct them to the immigration room to get the paperwork processed. And after they did that, then they would um, uh, either exit the building or they would get sent into secondary for an examination for the bags for whatever they're bringing. Yeah. And what about for, say, the decision to admit someone from the United States who has a criminal record to attend like a wedding or some other purpose? They would get sent to immigration. Oh, that's not done at secondary. Well, if we if they had if they made it through primary and they were sent for examination and then we found documents or um, something was concerning to the officer, we would send them back to immigration or we would run checks ourselves. We could we could do criminality checks to yeah. find out if the person had a record. And how did that process change over the years? Because I would imagine like now you swipe the passport, there's information sharing between all these countries in the not late seven. No? Not automatically. No, no. You have to do more detailed searches because there's a lot of different. Um, uh, there's a lot of different uh, processes to go through for different different uh, searches for criminality, etc. OK, so it's not. So they would have to they would run different I don't even know the acronyms from all this stuff now, but they would run a number of checks on this individual. Yeah. But so that's not done at primary where the swiping of the passport. No, that's, they the don't checks. have the, that goes back to the time thing, because if you did that at primary, the backlog would be, they need to move them forward to yeah. get all the, you know, I, I was going to say too, I want to share one thing about, um, um, we have people that come in, um, we had two individuals that were from Sri Lanka and they found them in a bathroom upstairs. They had kind of, they were supposed to make it through, but they found them and they had fake pass or fake documents. And it's back to the, you know, and go back to the compassion thing is the more experiences you have, the, the more eye opening it is for you. And these two individuals were considered Tamils, tigers or terrorists. Um, and they had come in and not treated respectfully necessarily in my mind by some individuals. I won't get into details, but sometimes people say things that they, they don't think they understand because they weren't speaking English. Whereas personally, I want to treat everybody respectfully. And I didn't know that they spoke English or not, but it turns out, and there was, there's a conversation with somebody and these individuals, they did speak English, but they didn't let on that they speak, spoke English at first which really peeved me in regards to uh, somebody I'd worked with that was making comments. Anyways, these poor individuals, if you talk about, we're, you know, trying to come to a better life, um, when they had documents that were on their, on their person and um, they were showing, th these guys had been beaten. So you, they, they were scarred where they were hung up by their ankles, they were scarred on their wrists and they had scars on their backs where they had been tortured and whipped and cigarette burns on their. So, you know, I know that really stands, you know, stands um, up in my mind about what hardship and stuff people are coming to or from to come to a better life in this country. 
Would you say that over time there was a change in the overall culture that you were experiencing within the department? Um, in, what, in what respect? Well, I mean, I think that for many practitioners, uh, there has been a shifting gradually over time where enforcement is more seems more of a priority as opposed to the compassionate handling of, of requests at the port of entry. I'm just wondering if from somebody who has perspective inside of the department, that was something that you, um, you felt during the time there. Uh, personally, I didn't. Um, I, I think one thing that's, when I was working, when it was separate with, from immigration and customs, uh, and I didn't know all the ins and outs of what immigration was doing, but when they sort of combined the two, personally, I felt a lot more resources were being sent on the immigration side. So investigations was spending more time dealing with, with, with immigration issues than on sort of customs issues in regards to, um, I don't know, business uh, smuggling and et cetera, et cetera. So there was kind of a more of a shift to the immigration side. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think um, where immigration, I think struggles in a way too, is that there's a lot of people that work here illegally. And where you've probably heard that where there is that on border security, there was, there was a situation where our inland enforcement went to arrest a couple of individuals who were working up here illegally. When they went in, there was like eight people working up here illegally. So um, there was a complaint from one of the individual's partners and uh, the episode never aired, but um, I think we have a problem in Canada where people are also looking for cheap labor and, and, and um, they are uh, trying to use what term to use. They're taking advantage of people that are coming up here because they're not here legally. So they're paying them under the table and they're working in construction jobs because that was the site that where they eight people were arrested but not even thinking about these, the, the, the company or the business that was hiring these people, if they were hurt, they're not covered by work safe. They're not covered by anything. They're just basically cheap labor. And to me, that's pretty disgusting that um, this can go on. Yeah. Do you think the department is under resourced then? Or I guess all departments probably think they're under. Well, I, yeah, I, I think if you talk to anybody that works for us, yeah, yeah, we need more, more staff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's that, that would be a, I, yeah, that 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 part is true. And then they try to balance their resources about what where their money can go and what can be spent, or there's limiting overtime, or they're, you know, it's. I mean, that's that's been a, an issue I think from the moment I when I joined in '78 that there was always a resource issue, yeah. but. Um, I mean, uh, I know for the for for the immigration side, I think they need to put a lot of resources into them for them to be able to help process. Like I know that uh, people that complain about coming, people that are you know jumping the jumping the queue. And when I started with with C, with customs and now CBSA, I would think, wow this person's trying to circumvent the system. There's all these other people waiting in the queue to try to get their paperwork to, to come here legitimately. And all these other people are, you know, 
jumping in front of them by, by, by doing, you know, trying to get across illegally and stuff like that, but not really knowing the whole story. So it's so easy to judge without actually having all the information about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just, do you think like in terms of uh, CBSA kind of being separated from immigration? And I think on the CBSA website, it says that, you know, CBSA officers are responsible for enforcing some double digit number of applications. Do you think that like all CBSA officers should do rotations where they're processing files and vice versa where IRCC are at the border? Because one of the strange things now is like, it's changed a bit with COVID, but with all these applications, the people who are reviewing all the documents aren't the ultimate people who do an interview at the end, which is done at CBSA. And there's this weird gap where there's a disconnect. Yeah, there's a huge disconnect. For sure. Well, even this whole notion of people jumping the queue, I'm not sometimes sure what queue it is they're jumping when there is no uh, no viability to making an application from abroad in certain circumstances, too. I mean, not to say that I'm encouraging people to uh, to to make an, an illegal attempt to enter Canada. But um, I think that having there be that disconnect means that those who are on the side of um, either the administration or the denial of admission or the removals process don't understand the, the, the unique complexity of, of making the applications for admission. Okay, so let, let me, I'll backtrack maybe in regards to using the term, you know, jumping the queue. Mm-hmm. In regards to that, where there's a long light of, of, of you know a long list of people who are trying to come in sponsor their their family members etc so they're waiting and waiting and waiting and then you have people that will come through saying that they're visitors and then they get here and then they try to like or, or claim refugee status or whatever so the average you know when i started i would think wow that's just awful these people are doing that but not really knowing back to the compassion side or the history side of why they're doing it Right. So um, that's sort of where I was going with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now the department's completely abandoned the notion of a queue anyways. And I mean, I know you're retired, but like right now, nothing <laughs> is processed in the order that it's received, it seems. Yeah. Um, so the whole notion of a queue has become more just everyone trying to crowd onto a bus with no one lining up. Um, and yeah. well, so what do you think the solution to that disconnect is? God, if I had an answer, I'd be wealthy. <laughs> um, honestly, I don't know. I, I, I personally would just like to see our people, like people that work even within our organization, become more um, in tune with what's going on, like educate themselves about hardships that people are facing, etc., um, and I, and maybe they are, I don't know. I just know that from when I was working, I saw that there was some people that were very compassionate and then there was other people that just were, we're arrogant. We're not, no. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, you have, I don't know, you can't force somebody to become compassionate, but you would hope that that over a period of time with based on your experiences that you would start trying to understand what people go through to try to get here 
I had an individual um, from Indonesia who came in, presented himself as a lawyer from Indonesia. And he said that he was coming here to uh, look at a couple schools for his wife in Quebec. And his story was, you know, he's, he dressed the part. He had a you know, suit jacket. He had a white shirt. Like he had taken the tie off. He had, you know, the nice dress shoes. He had a laptop and stuff. And just didn't seem his story, you know, the more he asked questions, the harder it was for him to answer. And his English was fine. And opened his suitcase and it was uh, dirty clothing and there was not many pieces, sort of similar to the woman from Russia. And his laptop, I just said, you know, you know, take take your battery out for me. He said, no, please, sir, don't make me do that. Because it was just a prop, right? And he was just trying to come for a better life as well. And, and again, I felt no joy of, of catching him. I, I felt sad for him. But again, I, I don't want to play the role of saying, well, today I'm having a bad day. So you're going in or you're not coming in. And the next day I, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, well, yeah, let him go. Or, but, and, and, you know, you, you try to, I don't know, you, you, you want to follow the rule of law the best you can. And yeah. those decisions aren't, weren't mine to make. But if I started making that decision saying, I'm going to let him in anyways, then, then I, it, would be, it would be on me. I'd be wrong to be doing that. Yeah. We've talked before on the podcast how there's been studies about how judges uh, are stricter in the hour before lunch than they are in the hour after lunch and the hour <laughs> before their end of day. Uh, that's and good, how that's this, good to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think its sentences tend to be longer in the period right before lunch. Um, wow. Did you like? I guess did you notice such? You wouldn't notice that type of thing, but did you notice or like instances where people's people brought, say, stress from outside the job into the job that could impact decisions, or if someone was having a bad day personally, it could be taken out on people going through the border? I personally, I think so. I think that we're all human and sometimes yeah. we have better, we have better days than other days. And sometimes we would like to take some things back we, that we've said. That's why I always try to uh, choose my words carefully. And I, I was involved with the critical instance stress management program too. And I would, I would say to people, don't judge anybody in this room about how they respond because we don't know what's going on in their personal lives either. So the same thing is we don't know what's going on in the traveler's life as they come up. They could have just lost a loved one. They could be going through a marital. There, there, there could be a number of factors, right? So you just try not to take any of that stuff personally. But I, I, I personally think that, you know, it would be very naive of me to think that, oh, everybody were professional the whole time because I don't believe that for a second. Just in, in any field whether you're uh, with customs or you're a lawyer or whatever walk of life you have, you, you can't, you know, have a happy, happy face all the time. It's We're not designed for consistency, but I'm curious though. I mean, you said something about uh, hoping that officers would educate themselves. Um, I'm interested in knowing about what efforts were made institutionally to impart that kind of compassion or to uh, to ensure that people were processing uh, claims or applications in a uh, in a 
respectful way, um, that sort of thing. Um, was that something that changed over time or, um, you know, was it something that the department took a fairly hands-off approach about or was it something that they did quite proactively? I didn't think of them doing anything proactive about that. I, and, and I'm not, you know, it was way above my pay grade about how with, with, personally, I try to keep myself informed about what's going on in the world. But I also think that in, in, that maybe the agency didn't want to, I don't know, not to skew somebody's decision-making by, by saying this is what's going on because bettering discretion or to use right. I, I think, term. I think, yeah. right. But I think that um, we as individuals should educate ourselves with what's going on to world events to understand a little bit more about what's going on in other parts of the world to, to understand why, you know, this is a great country. And, and, you know, like I said, we won the lottery by living where we're at. Other people want to have a better life, but I was fortunate to be able to have a lot of experiences dealing with, with, with different cultures coming in that were trying for a better life that I feel I am compassionate about it. Yeah. And I can't speak for every single other person that I've worked with in regards to that, but I think it's their life experiences as well that personally, I think life experiences make you a better officer by educating yourself, trying to understand um, the individual that's coming in. Yeah. The, I guess like was, as an officer, is it recorded every time you let someone in that, this was the primary officer who let that person in. They yes, they, they would have a record of it because you sign in, so it's your your uh, your ID. So when you're processing, and they would know it was you that 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 you referred them or you didn't refer them. And in okay. secondary, you're you're also completing a document showing that you processed them as well. So there's that accountability, which is good. You know, in in, in my in my mind. And so if someone, say, did work without authorization or commit a crime, do they go back to that? Like, is there follow-up with the officer who let them in? I don't believe so, because yeah. they could be, the story could be really good at primary. And, you know, you're processing people. So what they do once they get out, you really can't, you have no control over. Yeah. I'm interested in what measures, though, were taken to ensure accountability of officers in the way that they handled their day-to-day -day job. Um, was that something that you said was actively monitored and mentored and that sort of thing, or again, left to a more passive perspective? I think our process of, of um, uh, reviews are better than they were before, because it was almost like you would get a standardized review. Yeah, you're doing great. And you and you exceed or, or you you're satisfactory or whatever and now it's a bit more detailed and when people are getting when they're getting uh, they, they come on there's more one-on-one -on -one conversations with the individual and it's pretty overwhelming i think when you come into there's we, we do like 80 acts of parliament there's just a lot of pressure on these individuals so when i was at the airport i would come up to anybody i saw that was new in uniform i'd just say hey give them my name and say look I know it's overwhelming. Um, if there's anything I can do to help you, I will. I will. And I'd give them my name and say, look, 
if I can't get the answer, I will get, or if I don't have the answer, I will get it for you just to make them feel a bit more welcome. Whereas sometimes in an organization, you're just sort of flying out there until you can prove yourself, which really always used to bother me. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd come into the, I came into the airport and I can say this now that I'm retired, but there was individuals who treated me terribly. Like the, I was like, ignored I was and not knowing that I had found 50 kilos of cocaine on a ship or not knowing my background or anything and I'd been in a lot of years but it was because I was new to that new there they basically blew me off like I was just some old guy which used to really annoy me because no not you they had no concept or no no um and I just hope that 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 um that culture has changed and, and sadly I don't believe it has but yeah, I think I've seen that YVR Airport, um, at least as of up to a few years ago, had like reports of morale issues um, among CBSA. I never went beyond the headlines as to why that was. But. I think that's, I can tell you that every single time they do these studies across the board, even if people are sort of happy, they say, no, we're not happy. And so the morale issue is is something I think that has been going on for, and I'm sure it's in every every organization as well. Morale is tough, uh, I think, in any ship work operation because you're yeah. you're not having Monday to Friday eight to four, and you're with your family every evening, and you're and you have your weekends off. You're working graveyard shift. You're working four on three off or five on four off, and that's where the problem is in, in personally in organizations that don't address that or identify that, that you need to help um, individuals realize that you need to make sure you have time for your family, that work-life balance. And there was a a gentleman, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, who used to speak at um, law enforcement conferences and an amazing speaker. And he was saying, basically talking about the where in law enforcement, there's a lot of type A personalities, whether you're with customs or the police or, or, and you're going, going, going and making decisions and then you leave your work and you don't want to make decisions because you're tired, right? And then you also start your team that you're working with because you're on a, it's a team concept that on your days off, you're hanging out with some of your team members because your, your, your other friends that you knew before, they're, they're, they're in bed because they're up the next morning or on and on and on. So you sort of, cut ties with people that were part of your life prior, right. which, is not, which is not a good thing. So that individual is saying that you need to make like a schedule where you're going to have a date night with your spouse or make sure you're doing stuff with your kids and writing it down to commit yourself to do that. Because people that work in these fields, they really lose sight of everything in life. And then they can get a bit skewed in their, in their attitudes because they're talking about the same story. They leave work and they're talking about work, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You go to a movie, you're talking about work. And that person did this and that person, oh, can you imagine this and stuff like that? And that's really a bad thing, obviously, to, to continue. Do you think people also took it like, I assume that most, a lot of people, especially at the land border, are lying to CBSA officers about what they've purchased, say? Um, and does, do you think that makes some officers like someone once described it, like a CBSA officer's career is basically at the land border anyway, being lied to all the time by people about what they bought 
in the States. Does that, you think, call, lead to people being like officers being jaded or anything like that? It, it can, um, based on, you know, it, we, I, I remember dealing with somebody from at the airport and he was a, he was a, a prison guard prior. And I was listening to him to talk to somebody and then I called him up and I said, look, like 99.9% .9 of the people or 99% of the people that you deal with here are honest, right? To whatever degree, if they've got something small undercut, I said, you're not dealing with prisoners, right? But they get into that mindset about everybody's, everybody's lying, right? So it would be the same thing at the border where you, you, you catch a lot of people, but it's, and sometimes I know that some people have taken things personally and it's like, it's not personal, right? They think like, well, you, you lied to me. Well, no, they didn't, they, they didn't tell the truth. And it's, it's, they're just trying to like, they're just trying to save some tax or whatever. Right. But they're yeah. not, it's not, it's nothing personal, right? <laughs> they don't know you from Adam and they're, and they're anyways. Yeah. Yeah. It's this sort of thing that I was kind of getting at when I was talking about cultural shifts and mm -hmm. um, this idea of being jaded and whether it's because the volumes are greater or because the risks are greater or because the, the technology is so much more sophisticated that there's just so much more information. Um, but from what you're saying, it's not that this is something new, that this is something that's always part of the kind of enforcement culture, uh, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, I... I... I was going to say that we get inundated with with intel reports from all over the world and just and I'm only speaking for myself but just prior to my retirement we would see a lot of stuff out of Mexico and very graphic images of, of people that were murdered and and not and not just not just your basic shooting just graphic things you can't unsee and then I, I decided that I'm not going to look at this anymore because that's not going to make any difference to me doing my job. And uh, I, I'm not, uh, I, 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 it's not that I was ever desensitized to it, but I didn't want to overwhelm myself with that. Right. And then when I came back on a contract at the mail center, because we're getting a lot of fentanyl and other chemicals, um, I started, I was looking back because we get just a lot of Intel stuff and it's like, I can't do this. There's no point. How many bodies can you see? Right. Yeah. And then yeah. you said the, the lack of humanity of what people do to people. Right. So you can understand why people want to come to this country based on what they've witnessed in other countries. I, I, I met a woman who was a cleaner. She had a cleaning company. She'd worked her way from, you know, coming in on, as a work permit to, to sponsoring her husband. And they had a, a cleaning company. And she said that living in Mexico city, that they slept with a handgun underneath their pillow because for fear. And I'm thinking, can you imagine us in our culture here thinking that we had to sleep with a gun beside us every night for fear of, of somebody breaking in and stuff? Oh, so yeah, a... the yeah. Um, yeah. The conservatives during the last election had two immigration proposals that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, not in the sense that they were conservative proposals or anything, just the idea behind them. And they were in the campaign, but they weren't the campaign, you know, the platform. They weren't really discussed in detail, so it wasn't super clear what they meant. One of them was that any tie, uh, the only officers who could process 
an individual's application or interview them, this is in the immigration context, not CBSA, was often were people either from that background or familiar with the cultural background. And so again, it wasn't clear if they were trying to say like, you could only process a Chinese person's application if you were Chinese or taken a Chinese culture course and they were never pressed on what it meant during the campaign. But is that something that like, as you know, an officer yourself, when you hear a proposal like that or something similar, like kind of what's your gut reaction to the idea? I think that's an empty campaign promise. I could always <laughs> hear from whether which party, but I would be, uh, I, 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 so, so what you're saying is a Chinese person should be dealing with the Chinese. Well, person. and that's just like they, so they didn't specify what they meant. It was just people trained or familiar with the culture of the person or of the same cultural background. I, I, I don't think that would be wise. I think that, um, if they're concerned about that, then they should be sort of educating all, all the officers about each culture. So we're sort of on the same playing field because wouldn't that be awful that, so, so there's no Chinese officers today to process somebody. That means nobody's gonna get processed. We have to wait for like, to me, that's ridiculous. I, and I can only say, and I'm gonna jump back to my, my time at the airport during SARS, that the ugliness of people really show through that we had people coming back to Canada. And of course, SARS was new and we were trying, we were, we were pretty advanced in, at, at Vancouver airport anyways, and how we were processing anybody and taking care of our officers, et cetera. But we had travelers coming back saying, how come they're in our, there should be a separate line for the, for, for the Asians and stuff like that. Even though they're on the same flight, from California, but because they were Asian, they wanted to have separate lines. I'm thinking, are you nuts? Although that was my inner voice. My, my other <laughs> voice didn't say, are you nuts? I just say no, but it's like, wow. I mean, and you just, I don't know, it's so overt with, 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 um, with people, but anyway, sorry, I keep rambling on, but. No, no, it's good. It's uh, there. It's, it provides uh, stories for each question. The other okay. uh, commitment that they had was that all interviews would be recorded. Um, and so what are your thoughts on all, not body cams for officers, but like, I don't know where the cameras would be, but somehow that every interaction at secondary think that's, is recorded. I think that's a great idea. And the reason being is because then it's not he said, she said, you just hit the button and this is what happened. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And, and what I would, you know, I see what's going on in the world. Um, in Canada, obviously included. And I, I always would say that to people, every single interaction you have with the public, just think there's a camera on you. Mm -hmm. And would you, would you be dealing with that person differently if there was, if you didn't think somebody was watching you? Really? I, I think that sometimes people think they can get away with stuff when, when they don't think that they're, but it's like in today's world, everybody has a camera on their phone, right? So they can be videoed and stuff like that. But I mean, you shouldn't have to worry about that, but you should do your job that way. That every single interaction you have, you should be able to look back and say, this is why I did that. And you can listen to this, uh, listen to the transcript or whatever. And this is why I made that decision. And this person didn't say what they just said to you, but, and I'm sure the union would, I know, I know the union would, would not like that. 
<laughs> so what you're going to do is change my name when, we, when, you, when you do this yeah. podcast. <laughs> but I, 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 that's where you run into the union stuff. Yeah. There's, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I mean, this takes me back to the, the, the notion of accountability and, uh, you know, I understand that it's a high volume position and there's tons and tons of public interaction, but, um, you know, certainly I do like the idea of that degree of accountability and, you know, in interactions with the public. Um, but it's, it's interesting to note that that's not something that would have popular support within the department. Well, maybe, maybe the heads would say that that's a great idea. Yeah. (laughs) But from the rank and file, I just don't see them welcoming it with open arms. But personally, I, I, I think it would be run better, especially during for the immigration process. If you're sitting in a room and it's being there's an interview about it, I think that's great because it's not like you're in secondary where there's a ton of people and you've got two counters and you have people on both sides and you're talking and then there's that there's not as much privacy. But if you're in a room and interviewing somebody from the immigration side, you know, go have at it. But Yeah, and you'll often see that when we are given just a transcript, like somebody's notes, uh, you know, it leaves a lot of room for interpretation. It would be wonderful to have the actual conversation rather than the extrapolation yeah. of what was said after the fact. Yes. Yeah. The CBSA and notes are a lot better than the IRCC notes, I find. That's good to know. <laughs> well, like you'll see, um, like I've seen IRCC interview notes and it's three questions and you sit there and you're like, were there really only three questions during this whole interview? Because that's all there is in the record. Yeah. Then how come uh, the interview lasted an hour and a half? <laughs> <laughs> well, they had tried to extrapolate the, those three questions. Exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know. You know what? I, 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 I personally think it's a good idea, although I'm sure a lot of people would say, no, don't, don't have that. But I know from my perspective of when you're taking notes and you're in the process of dealing with the stuff and you're trying to, you're talking, you're trying to write notes or you go back into a room and you try to take notes later you're not going to catch everything of course and that's sort of one of the things that i always had a struggle with and this is from the critical incident stress management side is that when if somebody was involved in a shooting they were told that you got to go sit there and take notes right away and you present those notes but when there's a critical incident your your mind is still going 100 miles an hour and you are going to miss stuff so either you take the notes to the best of your ability and then get ripped apart because you you're going to amend your notes and then you're going to amend your report and you're going to amend your report because the, the reality is, is once the adrenal dump is gone, then you can actually focus on exactly what was said. Wow. So t- taking notes at that time as well, it's pretty hard to, to having a conversation and trying to think, and you're trying to think what's important that you're going to write down. Yeah. It certainly would be easier if you had, had, had it on, on, on a recorder, but Again, I don't think it will it would happen. I had one other question related to what we were talking about in terms of performance feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just really curious as to what kind of feedback an officer would be likely to get. Uh, you know, is it in terms of the substantive decision making or their volume of decision making? Are you able to offer any insight into how that process works? It would be a number of things about 
um, professionalism, um, enforcement. Um, there can be stuff where you've had interactions where you've gone out, you know, above and above beyond uh, your your duty to help people, etc. Having everything put all together, things you can improve upon. Um, and I think those those performance assessments are a lot more detailed and a lot better as the years have gone on. Like from when I started to to today, or when I retired. It, oh yeah, I got to go do sixteen assessments, and you can pretty much look at all, and they're almost there could be a few words changed, but they're pretty much the same because then you can tick that off that you've got your assessments done for the year. Instead of actually using that process, which they probably would say, oh yeah, that's why we're doing this, but to actually better that employee, right? To make them a better, well-rounded individual that can represent the department and, and, and have make better decisions based on your mentoring of them. Yeah. So how, how did the process improve? I, I wasn't quite clear exactly why. Uh, why okay, sorry, the, the originally there, the standard form was very basic about your performance with satisfactory or met satisfactory or whatever exceeds. Right. And now there's much more into, I, I can't offhand remember everything, but it was, it was much more detailed mm -hmm. and managers had more of a responsibility to take the time to actually do these in depth assessments of the individual and then meet with the individual and talk about, about that. But for me, I, I, I I acted as a manager a fair amount over the years. And if I was working with people, I would want, I would meet with each individual and I'd say, okay, what do you feel you bring the agency? And we'd write it down. What do you feel the agency needs to help you with? And then we would write it down. And then what I would do is to try to get them teamed up with other people who have those experiences or that, that knowledge to try to better them. But they, I don't see the agency doing that. I mean, I did it personally. But it didn't go over well because people are saying, oh, we're too busy or, you know, we have lots of people acting in management roles. Like, I, I think that's one of the issues for every, whether it's immigration or with, with, with custom side or the CBS or the immigration side is that you have a lot of revolving doors with managers coming in, acting superintendents, supervisors, et cetera, where you don't have consistency, where you have a superintendent that has that team for a long period of time. Right. But were there key principles in terms of like what were the performance metrics that people were looking for or certain, uh, you know, you talked about professionalism and that's professionalism to the clients or within your peers or were there a whole to the, like to the, cli to, the cli to the clients more so because it's all based on, on that. And uh, they would not put down um like performance in respects to how many enforcement actions you got this, this year, or because then, um, then you're almost looking like a competition. So it's, yeah. Oh man, I got 16 seizures. So I'm good. Like I can just yeah. sit back further. So they wouldn't do that. But if there was things that you did that were significant, they would write things down with significant seizures or, or cases that you were involved in or whatever to sort of justify why, why they're giving you that performance or that that type of assessment. Right. And um, just in the uh, looking at the time, I think my last question is what's something you, I mean, we've discussed a lot today, what's something that you think the general public or immigration lawyers 
what's a misconception that the general public or immigration lawyers or anyone has about CBSA that uh, you would like dispelled? Because <laughs> yeah, I know my way, my my words carry a lot of weight. Thank you. <laughs> well, I think from the immigration side, I, or from the from the lawyer side, I I I think that, and this is what I would tell people that I work with: when you put on a uniform or you have a title, you gain a modicum of of respect. The rest is earned. Like how how you do your job. Just because you wear the uniform doesn't mean you can throw your weight around, right? You need to gain respect by doing your job well. I'm dealing with some lawyers over the years. I've had lawyers come in with like guns blazing. And that's not really a good approach either. Like you can identify yourself in your role and that's great. But you also can listen. You don't try to kind of bully your way through based on your title. And sort of the same goes for CBSA. You don't just bully your way in because you are an officer either. So from the immigrant, from the lawyer side, that's sort of what I would say, actually listen to what they have to say. And if you're not being treated fairly or you're being sort of treated poorly, then ask to speak to somebody superior to that or that, their manager or whatever first, because there's no excuse for not being professional because that's what we're paid to do, right? We represent the agency. Uh, for the public, I think um, even though they canceled that show, and in, in, in my mind, it was boring, it was educational. So people, Customs was never really good about promoting what we do at all. So for years and years, uh, when I worked, they didn't want to consider us an enforcement agency, that we were tax collectors. So the public didn't know that we arrested people for narcotics. We didn't, they didn't know any of that stuff, or the, the general person didn't. Um, so I think the public is a bit better educated in what we do. Um, I think that the the agency could publicize um, successes that we have. And I think we've gotten better at that too, because a lot of seizure actions where you have the police arrest and they've got, you know, 150 kilos of cocaine or whatever, a lot of times customs is there at the press conferences. They make themselves available as well. But for years and years and years, we didn't take any and it's a credit, but we got yeah. no publicity as it was like the RCP sees this or such as even though it was our files that we it was we found it, but they did the controlled delivery. So we were never part of that. So the agency, I think, has gotten a bit better with that. But um, I, I, I don't know. I, I just would like to see that the public would be more made aware of, of the successes that we have um, yeah. as an agency. Going back to that lawyer's uh question you mentioned that the the Did I hit a nerve? no no it's, it brings me back to the conversation with uh carl because uh, you'd said that the um the uniform brings a modicum of respect and something that i asked him was did he care if the lawyer wore a suit and tie and so i'm curious since you mentioned that the uniform brings that you know the first sign of respect but then it's earned after that would would what a lawyer was wearing have impacted anything not, not for me personally, not at all. Just as long as they identify themselves and yeah, yeah. I, 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 I know it's, yes, being respectful. I, I think yeah. we, from all, all professions, sometimes we come in saying like, I'm this or I'm that. And it's like, yeah, that's nice. But yeah. right? so you don't want to get off on the wrong foot anyways, because I, I don't know, I, that, then it sort of puts up everybody's guards are up right away instead of, 
trying to work at, we're all stakeholders in this. Like we, we everybody has a role, right? That's you, you're, you're representing a client. The client is wanting to, you know, come in they want to, you know, and, and we're trying to process them and, and, and seeing if it's a legitimate claim or not. I mean, but we can all be respectful for each other. Yeah. Um, no, that, uh, that's good to know. That's been the, a consistent, uh, answer. And it's surprising how often I get asked the question from junior lawyers. What, what should I wear to CBSA? So. <laughs> wow. Well, that's actually nice. I mean, I mean, uh, <laughs> at least they're asking, right? <laughs> yeah. No, this is, uh, this has been very informative. I'm glad uh, that I discovered you on Christian's podcast. Thanks for discovering me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining I, I, us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, I was grateful to have the career. Um, lots of variety. Yeah. I think I developed more compassion, actually, by just seeing what where other people come from. And, and uh, I sort of wish the public as a whole in this country would take the time to actually try to, before they make assumptions about somebody coming in, actually look at the background and yeah. realizing that we are blessed by living here, right? It's not perfect, but it's certainly a lot better than what's going on around the rest of the world. No, I think about that every time. Uh, every time I'm stressed about, you know, some aspect of living here. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly what I've been doing. Everything we have here is a first world problem. Oh yeah, it doesn't take much. Just turn on the news and see what's going on. I mean, it's not all, you know, whether you think it's fake or whatever, but to see the images and stuff like that, you can't unsee them. My heart goes out to 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 uh, the Ukraine right now, especially. But uh, I mean, it's not the only country where people are suffering either. Yeah. So, I really hope that uh, uh, the country welcomes as many immigrants as possible. We need we need immigration. You know, uh, and the sentiment that's been sort of filtered from the U.S. disgusts me with with the white supremacists, etc. and, and Canada first and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, your relatives are probably, you know, immigrants, right? So my, my grandparents came from, from uh, Eastern Germany prior to the Second World War and the abuse and everything that they took because they, their culture and then the war zone and stuff like that, they, and they, they had nothing. And they, they had to scrape and scramble to get, you know, to where they were. And, you know, we being born here, for the most part, have never had to think about anything like that. I, I, the last thing I was going to say is that at 9-11, we, um, you know, we were, everybody, you know, they're worrying about terrorists, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and you know, it was devastating, obviously, that terrorists went and collapsed and, and 2,000 people plus died. But I said, you know, that is awful because, but it hits home because it's in North America. I said, but... So we we're we're inundated with that and we're and we're like, oh my God, this is awful, this is awful. But you know, six months prior, there could be a tsunami somewhere else and you know, a few thousand people die, and you're going, well, oh, that's sad. And then you go to the entertainment section of the paper, you go to sports and stuff like that, and you, you don't give it much thought, right? So until it actually hits close to home, um, you develop a bit more compassion. 